Um, we've got uh, Nehemiah this morning. If you don't have a lesson, either last week's or this week's, if you, you don't need last week's for today, but if you don't have a copy of last week's, you ought to pick one up. Uh, this week, I've supplemented some of the material from last week, and so you should get the supplement. Um, uh, it is just uh, uh, one, two, three, four pages. It's not long, but it gives you some additional material because I figure since we have a little extra time, we'll approach uh, uh, Nehemiah with a little extra uh, material. So if you need that, raise your hand, and uh, we've got a need down here for some. If, if y'all could bring them on down the aisle, uh, that would be helpful, yeah? Yeah. Well, there's, there's last week's handout and this week's handout that merge together. So if you don't have one of last week's handouts, uh, you ought to try and get one. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, have so much of the same background material to them that I merged them together last week in, in hopes that we could get through both. We were not able to. Uh, after Nehemiah, we go to Esther and then Job and then the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so I've, I'm, Esther is one week in itself, so I've saved Esther for next week and we're going to spend all day today in Nehemiah, which isn't a bad thing to do. Um, it gives us a little extra time, but since we're going to have a little more time in Nehemiah, I went ahead and put a little more material into the handout. So we have a a Nehemiah supplement, for lack of a better word. Um, we are, uh, by the way, uh, DeMond's sermon I thought was one of the best uh, uh, that I have heard him give because uh, um, it, it is uh, really something dear to my heart. I think in part because uh, we grew up... Uh, uh, in Lubbock, and our mom uh, started the food bank out there and uh, has always forced us to be conscientious of the fact that there are a lot of people with a lot of needs, and, and uh, uh, we have great blessings in this life and need to be attentive to it. Um, I wish that the entire state legislature and uh, uh, maybe our national legislature had been in church this morning to hear DeMond's sermons because I often get concerned that a lot of the laws that we pass in our state and in our country aren't concerned as much with the poor and the downtrodden as they are with um, the rich and the contributors. And uh, that's just a personal pet peeve of mine, and I don't set those out in front of you all very often, but I couldn't uh, withhold doing it this time, so excuse me for that. Um, um, it's also why uh, I urge and encourage people who have a good heart to run. Uh, uh, if you have a heart for the poor and a passion for the poor, you may not get a lot of campaign contributions running on it as a platform, but you're the kind of people who we need to, to help uh, at least uh, pay attention to the laws we're passing. Um, now, off my soapbox and onto my lesson. Um, the uh, uh, question I want to ask you as we get started today is what difference can one person make? Um, hold your hand up if you are one person. Okay, everybody but Dr. Bob did. He's schizophrenic, but that's okay. It, that makes four of us. Um, the, uh, 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 you know, all of us are one person. And I really, really ask you this. Honestly, what difference can you make? What difference can one person make? Not only in your life, but in the road that you walk. God does not call everyone to go out and be the president of the free world, country USA. 
God does not call everyone to go out and be the governor of Texas. If you're called to be that, then you need to do it and do it to God's glory. But every one of us has a road that we walk. And on our road to Jericho, there are problems and issues that confront us. It may be a person uh, like the parable Jesus gave about the man to Jericho, going down the road to Jericho. There's a man who is uh, 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 robbed and, and left naked and, and uh, desperate and hurt by the side of the road. And Jesus tells the story about all the individuals uh, who passed that man and did absolutely nothing for him. And I think the lesson for us, in part from what Jesus is saying, is on our road to Jericho, you will meet people on your road that are in need of your help. Now, it may just be one individual, or it may be a class of individuals, or it may be a neighborhood, or it may be an office, or it may be a family, or it may be a country. But whatever is on your road to Jericho is what God has put in your life for you to be his arms, his mouth, his feet, his vessel, for you to deal with. And so I ask you the question, what difference can one person make? And I want us to keep that question in the front of our brain as we walk through the book of Nehemiah and look at it, because Nehemiah shouts an answer to us. Um, uh, background of the book is contained in last week's handout or last week's uh, oral presentation, if you will, um, but it's uh, look for it in the Ezra and Nehemiah outline. I'm not going to use time going back over it today. Uh, to put us in a time frame, this is post-Babylonian exile. You'll recall in 586 B.C., finally, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, has been carted off into Babylonian captivity. And uh, uh, 70 years later, the people started coming back. And uh, in the process of coming back, they came back in waves and this is probably about the third wave that we know of, of people coming back. Uh, Nehemiah is still out in the di diaspora, or diaspora, depending upon how you pronounce it. Either one is acceptable. Um, that is our theological term, de jour. Uh, uh, the diaspora is uh, a reference to the dispersal, the scattering, the sowing of the Jews out among the Gentile nations. It happened basically with the Babylonian captivity when the Jews were sent out. And if you read theology books or you read religious books, sometimes they'll talk about the diaspora. And they'll be referencing this time or, or the, the Jews that were sent out among the nations. In God's plan, it worked out wonderfully well. It's why, for example, Saul, who is a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, who's kept his lineage, grows up in Tarsus, which is an island uh, uh, over there in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, uh, not an island, but, but near all of those islands. It's on the coast, I guess, of, Italy, of uh, Turkey now. Um, but Tarsus is, quote, no mean city, as Paul says in, in uh, the New Testament. Um, the Jews are dispersed everywhere, and it made the, the dispersal of Christianity um, uh, possible in the way that it worked. God had plans working through this. But the diaspora are the dispersion. We get dispersion in our English from the Greek uh, uh, is a term that was used uh, even in the Old Testament when it was translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, that's the LXX I've put up here, Deuteronomy 28, 25. You won't really get that reading out of your English version of your Bible. 
because uh, uh, at least your NIV, if you look at Deuteronomy 28.25, says, uh, says something. It's, okay, see, these are the kinds of things we can do when we have extra time. Uh, this is not. This is again not just biblical literacy. This is biblical literacy on steroids. This is, on, this is really big stuff. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty-eight uh, twenty-five. Um, um, let's see. Can are we there? Can y'all read that? Oh no, we're not there. We have the technology, but we can't make it work. Um, okay. How about? Yeah, I didn't want to have to tear this page out of the Bible. <laughs> the, <laughs> it'll be found by archaeologists, uh, you know, in a thousand years, and they'll say, there was this wicked little group of Southern Baptists meeting in Houston that did not believe one page of Deuteronomy to be biblical, so they <laughs> tore it out of their Bibles. We have discovered it. And, and uh, There's no telling what they'd come up with. Um, Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven, and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. See that, a thing of horror? Um, that's what the Hebrew reads, but when the, the, in, in the Septuagint, when the Hebrew Jewish scholars were translating that into Greek, they used the word diaspora, a dispersion among all the nations. Uh, uh, um, diaspora comes from two Greek words, dia, which means through uh, uh, or throughout, and uh, sporain, which is a verb that means to sow or to scatter seed, because that's the way they would sow seed. And so diaspora in the Greek uh, is diasporain, which means literally just scattered throughout. And to the Jews who translated the Old Testament into Greek, the horror that the Jews would become, that Moses was prophesying about, was being spread out among the nations as opposed to being their own kingdom. That was a horrible thing to those translators, and that's why they chose it that way. Um, I've also put as a reference down for diaspora, John 7.35. And uh, um, uh, for those of you who, uh, like my wife, um, think that having been in a sorority makes him a Greek scholar... Uh, <laughs> That's just the bitterness of a guy who was never in a fraternity. Um, uh, let's uh, uh, look at, at this. Some of you will be able to pick out some of this. First of all, you, you see what that is? Hey, man, you found the verse. That's pretty good. Verse 35. Uh, John seven thirty-five. 35. Uh, uh, if you look at this phrase right here that I'll underline. Um, am I getting? Yeah, there it is. Uh, May astain diasporon. Um, this word right here that I'm circling, that is the letter D, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A-N. See, it's, if you can just do the Greek alphabet, you see that that's diasporon. And, and what this is saying, uh, this is, is uh, the question about Jesus. May is, is a question of basically indicates I'm, I expected no answer to this. But this question is, uh, you know, are you uh, going into the dispersion among the Greeks? Are you, you know, it's the intention to go into the dispersion among the Greeks. 
uh, and uh, didaskane tos helenes to, to teach the Greeks. They were wondering, is that where Jesus is going? Is he planning on going out among the Greeks? So the diaspora is those that have been dispersed and scattered among the nations. And that's who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is out among the nations. He is living in Susa, which is the citadel for the king of, of Persia, even though the Jews have been allowed to go back to their own lands. A lot of Jews did not choose to return. They did not lose their Jewishness. They kept track of their Hebrew heritage. They kept track of their genealogy. They proved themselves to be children of Abraham. And they kept track of their Torah. They kept track of the law of Moses. They continued to have teaching. They continued, they opened up temples and synagogues. Uh, 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 synagogues more likely, but uh, at least an indication that some use the word temple for uh, uh, one particular in, in Egypt, at Elephantine, a uh, uh, community there. So the Jews chose to stay dispersed in the diaspora. And that's where we find Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the diaspora. And then out there, this question comes back into your brain because we've just diverted for a bit of academia. Let's come back to the lesson for today. What difference can a person make looking at Nehemiah? Now, what I've done is I've taken my Bible. Actually, this is Becky's, um, but it's community property state. I own half of it, and I'm claiming the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> I have taken uh, uh, my Bible and uh, <laughs> the things we lawyers can do. Um, the, uh, um, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to pay attention to the text as we go along, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it in front of me and just kind of work through it. If you've got your Nehemiah in front of you, uh, I'm going to start with chapter 1. I'll try and keep the PowerPoint going as well, uh, uh, and, but there are some verses I really want us to pay attention to. We've got uh, 25 minutes or so. Uh, let's make it count. The book begins, in the words of Nehemiah... In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, okay, this is Nehemiah, Nehemiah is in Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. So here's Nehemiah, Nehemiah's in Susa, his brother Hanani comes from Judah where Hanani has either been living, most likely living, comes for a visit, brings some guys with him. Nehemiah is sitting there and Nehemiah says, so how are things in Jerusalem? Is everybody enjoying being back in the promised land and, and the return from exile? Are things going well? It says, I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. Hanani and the others said to, Jeremiah, or to Nehemiah, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. I got to tell you, something's just come up on the road to Jericho for Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you know, there are a lot of times in my life where I might ask a question like that and I might get an answer like that. And the immediate thought in my brain is, oh man, why did I even ask? You know, we could have been talking about how tech just blew the doors off Iowa State last night. You know, we, we could have been talking about how Texas needs to figure out what's wrong because they have the best athletes in the country and yet they get blown out by Oklahoma. We could have been talking about the weather and the fact a cold front's coming in. And, and me, I have to ask him and find out this stuff about Jerusalem. And you can see Nehemiah's reaction 
is one that's deep in his heart, in his gut. Uh, uh, in, the, in the biblical writers, they don't talk about the heart as the seat of the emotions. They talk about the gut, where you read out of uh, his heart will flow living waters. The, the literal translation would be out of his intestines flows living waters, or out of his belly, the King James, I think, used to say. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, just from the gut, that's where they felt the emotions. And, and, and it affects Nehemiah there. It says, Nehemiah, verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and I cried. I wept, I cried bitterly. For some days I mourned and I fasted. Nehemiah was touched. Hanani gives the report. Nehemiah has the reaction. And it's interesting because some seed starts to germinate in Nehemiah's head as he's fasting and thinking and crying. What can one person do? Nehemiah is, is working in Susa. It's his brother and his friends who come and give the problem report. And Nehemiah is not satisfied just to hear about it and say, oh, gee, I'm going to pray for you guys. This is something that stirs up within Nehemiah uh, a burning desire to see something done. And so Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer. Um, there is a lot to be learned by the way he prays. Nehemiah starts his prayer out and says, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. He begins his prayer recognizing God for who God is. He comes before the almighty God, not with um, uh, his, his needs, his desires, his wants. He starts his prayer out with, O Lord God, how great and awesome you are. A recognition of who God is is where he begins. And having started there, he continues with a confession of sin. He says, um, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear this prayer. I confess the sins, this is verse 6, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Those two go hand in hand. If you sit down before God, kneel down before God, fall down before God, and see God in all of His splendor, or even a fraction of His splendor, and you acknowledge and recognize who He is as a great and awesome and loving God, immediately a proper next step is to recognize how sinful we are in comparison to that. And that is the next step within the prayer, a confession of sin. And after Nehemiah confesses his sin, then he seeks his fa God's favor. But the favor he seeks is not something for Nehemiah. It's something that's within God's will anyway. Nehemiah just wants to be a part and wants to do right by God and in his will. And so he says to, to, to the Lord in the prayer down in verse 11, O Lord, be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Um, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who's the man? It's told in the rest of that verse. I was cupbearer to the king. See, uh, Nehemiah was working in Susa, but he didn't just like uh, um, do a normal job. He was a cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer at this time, uh, we get from several different sources. 
uh, uh, Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, writes about how important a cupbearer was because that was who tasted and tested the wine of the king. Um, that's how they made sure uh, the, the king was not being poisoned. Uh, Xenophon, who's another Greek historian, writes about uh, uh, the father of Artaxerxes, this king, who was killed by uh, chamber uh, people uh, in his own bedroom. You could not trust your servants around you very well. So you would grab the most trustworthy person and have them be uh, your poison tester. Uh, it was Nehemiah's job to select the wine and to make sure that it was not poisonous. And to prove it was not poisonous, Nehemiah would take the first drink. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, uh, that's what we have here. Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He's a very important person to the king. And uh, uh, Nehemiah one day, chapter 2, after praying to God for help, Nehemiah takes wine and gives it to the king. And it's interesting to read this in chapter 2. It says, Nehemiah says, I had not been sad in his presence before. And, and we know that also from, from records uh, uh, old and new. Um, uh, you, you, you did not go into the presence of the king to serve the king with sadness. Um, uh, I find it's interesting. I had a secretary assistant who was telling me she had chewed out one of the lawyers at, at my law firm. And I said, what did he do? She said, well, I'm just tired of him coming in and being grumpy around you all the time. I said, well, that's just him. He's grumpy when he's in a good mood. And, and she said, well, I know, but he ought to fake it. All the rest of us fake it around you, and he ought to fake it too. <laughs> I said, Jan, bless you, but uh, do y'all really all fake it? Y'all aren't always in a good mood? No, she says, no, sometimes we're in a horrible mood, but you can't tell it. <laughs> and you shouldn't be able to tell it with him either. And uh, Jan would have fit in well back then because uh, with... with uh, 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 his uh, Nehemiah's employer, Nehemiah, always had a happy disposition uh, when he was in the presence of the king. And, uh, but this day he was not. He says, I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not sick? This, this has got to be from the heart. And I, I, I tell you, I, I, I can read this to you, but I can't, uh, um, I can't do the justice. What happened up here? We disappeared. Oh, I see. I hit blank screen. Okay, Philip had it labeled. I just didn't read it. Um, I, love, I love the text here. He says, um, I took the wine. I gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before. The king says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And, and it says, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king look, live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Um, uh, this is such a human story. It, it very much reads firsthand to me. Uh, this is Nehemiah saying, you know, the king said it. I've already prayed about it. Here's the problem. What can one man do? I prayed about it to God. I asked for God's favor. I go into the king. I've still got the sadness of heart. The king says to me, why are you sad? I think, oh, my lands, here it is. You know, I asked God for help, and he must have been listening because it looks like I've got the opportunity now right in front of me. Um, you don't typically go in and ask the king for these kinds of favors, but I was afraid, but I did it anyway. And I lays it out there to the king. And the king's response is, well, what do you want me to do? 
What is it you would have me to do? Um, what is it you want, I guess, is, is the way it's translated here. And the king said to me, what is it you want? And I love this response of Nehemiah. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Now, I do not think that this was an interaction where Nehemiah walks up to the king. We could have gotten, um, uh, uh, you'd do a drama for this one, uh, just a short little two-minute skit. You know, Nehemiah walks up to the king, says with a sad face, here's your wine. Oh, wait. Here, it's clean. King says, oh, gee, why are you so sad? You're not sick. Maybe it's from the heart. Well, now that you ask, uh, my city's destroyed, and uh, my forefathers who are lying in their grave, uh, they're getting ransacked, and, and nobody's protecting it, and life is pretty bad, and I've just heard about it, and it's got me really upset. King says, what is it that you want? Nehemiah says, um, hang on, I'll answer you in a minute, but first, I need to pray. Oh, Lord. Okay, That's not what happened. This is Nehemiah saying, King says, you know, this is a big interaction. King says, well, what is it you want? And it's kind of under his breath or in his brain, Lord, help me, please, as he answers. See, prayers to God are not always on your knees or in your bed or at the dinner table or, or at church. Paul says to pray without ceasing. What he means in that is to do like Nehemiah is doing. You have a dialogue going with God as you go throughout your day. You keep that dialogue open with the Lord. So that when the king says, what do you want? Your natural reaction is not just to blurt it out, but it's to say, oh God, help me please. And then blurt it out. And that's what Nehemiah does. It says Nehemiah says, uh, then I prayed... To the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, um, can I go fix this problem? Let the king send me to the city in Judah where my dad's buried so I can rebuild it. And the king says, how long are you going to be? <laughs> I just love the, the, the way the story reads. This is literally what it says. How long is your journey going to take? When, when are you getting back? And uh, uh, the king says, okay. And the king sends Nehemiah and sends him with letters of protection, sends him with some armed guards so he can make it back to Jerusalem safely, though they don't stay, evidently. And uh, sends him with instructions that the guys with the lumber are supposed to supply the lumber. And uh, uh, off he goes. Well, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. When he gets to uh, Jerusalem, he starts out with a night tour because he hadn't told anybody what he's doing and told anybody his plans. He's still mulling it over, trying to figure it out. It's him and God working on this thing. What can one man do with this problem? He could have just said, gee, brother, sorry, and sent him on his merry way. But instead, he's praying, he's seeking the Lord, he's seeking the Lord's favor. He's walking boldly where no man has gone before. He's doing his best Captain Kirk as he goes on down the road. And so... He gets to uh, uh, Jerusalem. He stays there for a couple of days. Then at night, so nobody can see, he goes out and tries with a few other guys to find his way around the wall just to see how bad the rubble is. And the rubble is bad. 
they, there are parts where they can't make it through. The rubble's so bad. Jerusalem's walls have been destroyed. The gates have been burned down. And so in the process, he says to his friends, he says, hey, y'all see how much trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Let's rebuild the wall so that um, we're not in disgrace. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, Nehemiah says, this is when I told him what God had really put on my heart to do. And, uh, uh, or as he says it, I also told him about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said. Well, they reply, hey, let's start rebuilding. So they began. Now, enter the enemy. It's never as easy as you think. You can have God on your side. And it seems even with God on your side, Satan rears his head and tries to stop what you're about. So verse 19, when Sanballat, that's not a good name. When Sanballat the Horonite, I wouldn't want to be a Horonite either. <laughs> Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked us and they ridiculed us. So, hey, what are you doing? And I answered and said, God's going to give us success. We're rebuilding the walls. Now, we have an interlude while Nehemiah gives credit to the different people who worked on the different gates, and then we pick back up the story in chapter 4. But what we have here is we have um, um, Sanballat and Tobiah uh, causing trouble. Now, Sanballat, we know about, uh, uh, we know who he is because I mentioned to you the community and uh, Jewish community in the Egyptian town of Elephantine. Um, in 407, which would be... Uh, uh, a couple of decades after this, in 407, they wrote a letter, um, uh, the translation of the letter. They wrote a letter to try and get a temple rebuilt there in Elephantine. And uh, the petition for authorization to rebuild the temple of Yaho. And this is a, a papyrus document uh, that I've got a photograph of the papyrus, but I didn't bring it because I can't read it and neither can you. Um, probably. We might have some people who do this, but... Uh, um, in the process, it's interesting to note what they say here. This was found, I think, in uh, the early, um, early 1900s, somewhere around there. But I could be wrong on that date, so, so don't hold me to it. But it says, We've set the whole matter forth in a letter in our name to Deliah and Shelemiah, the sons of Sanballat, the governor of Samaria. Samaria, remember, is the part just north of Judah, just north of Jerusalem. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if Sanballat wasn't trying to claim Jerusalem as his own. At least it was the city immediately to his south that would have been the biggest threat to his governorship. And so that's the Sanballat we've got here. He's a governor uh, um, out of uh, 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 Samaria, which would have been northern Israel uh, before uh, it was decimated. So when Sanballat heard we were rebuilding the wall, he got really angry. He ridicules us. They all plot together, and they decide, I'm going to start condensing this so we get through it a little quicker. Here's what happened. So Sanballat comes out with Tobiah and tries to ridicule and stop Nehemiah from doing the work that God put in Nehemiah's heart to do. Nehemiah ignores the ridicule and starts building. So then Sanballat realizes he's going to take his little army, and he's going to do it the, easy, or the hard way. He's just going to kill them and put a stop to it that way. And word gets to Nehemiah that Sanballat's planning on taking his army and sort of infiltrating the work job and then all rising up at one time and killing everybody. 
So Nehemiah prays about it. Everything that happens, Nehemiah prays about. Nehemiah prays about it and then says, okay, this is the way we're going to do it now. Um, all of our people who are building and working on the walls, we're dividing up into shifts of two. Half of you build while the other half holds their weapons and watches. Everybody listen for my bugle horn. If we blow the bugle, drop what you're doing and come where we are because that's where there's a fight raising up. And Nehemiah's smart uh, social guy here because he stations the, the people to fight in families and in groups. So when you're fighting, you're fighting to protect your family. It gives you even more motivation. You don't flee uh, the fight because you flee, it's your family that's going to get killed. Um, so Nehemiah sets this system up and when Sanballat sees his plans were foiled, he goes, oh, drats. And uh, uh, the, the, the work continues. Well, after a period of time, they've got the walls basically built. Now these are not the huge walls that had been in Jerusalem uh, at the time of King David and at the, or at the time uh, even when the, um, uh, the invasion and the destruction came in 586 B.C. They do Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls in a much reduced fashion, a much smaller fashion, because Jerusalem itself, the population, has been decimated. Um, after the walls are rebuilt, the gates aren't hung yet. And so Sanballat decides, hey, I've got to really do something here. So Sanballat sends a messenger to uh, uh, Nehemiah, says, hey, buddy, uh, good job on the castle walls. Uh, there are some issues, though, we ought to be talking about. Why don't you come on down to this little town and let's visit? And Nehemiah sends back a letter that says, no, I don't have time. Thank you, though. Have a good day. And uh, Sanballat says, huh, maybe tomorrow. So the next day he sends a letter and says, hey, what you doing today? Want to eat lunch? You know, Come on down. Let's talk. Nehemiah sends back, not nah, too busy. I got gates to hang. Thanks, though. This happens five times. And Sanballat starts to realize, okay, this isn't going to work either. Um, and ultimately, what you have from Nehemiah is Nehemiah saying to him, um, hang on, it's got really good language. He says, um, uh, the fifth time Sanballat sent his aide, and the aide comes with this letter. And the letter says, uh, look, if you're not going to come down and talk to me, let me just tell you what's going on. There are rumors afoot that you're rebuilding these walls because you're going to become king. And once that word gets out, you know that the king himself is going to think you're a traitor and he's just going to come down and trash you. I'm looking out for your good. Now, would you come down? Let's sort this stuff out. And that's like Satan in front of Jesus. Uh, with uh, After Jesus has fasted 40 days, the first temptation is, hey, buddy, I know you've got to be hungry. Turn the rocks into bread, get something to eat, and then we'll deal with this stuff. You know, he comes across sounding like a friend. Um, and so that letter gets written. Uh, um, and I love the reply that Nehemiah gives. He says, you're dreaming. <laughs> nothing, quote, nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. Close quote. See ya. And he still won't come down. Well, this has got to just frustrate the fire out of Sanballat. But the bottom line is, is the house gets, or the, the walls get built and the gates get hung. And Jerusalem is repopulated. And the people come together and they celebrate. The celebration itself is phenomenal. Um, let's go back to the tablet and look at the celebration real quick. It takes 52 days to build it. Hanani is designated as the man in charge because he's a man of integrity, and that's why Nehemiah sets him there. 
Uh, they draw a lottery, take one out of ten families to put them back into Jerusalem to repopulate. Uh, Nehemiah has to take a time out in here because the poor people are being abused by the wealthy. It's just like DeMond's sermon this morning. Nehemiah had a heart for the poor. He does a time out and he has what we would call a come to Jesus meeting with the rich people and says, cut it out. You quit charging usurious interest, you give them back their land, and you quit oppressing these people and let them eat. And the rich people say, to their credit, you're right, we were wrong. And they stop what they were doing. In the, so in the process of this, these little things, side stories happen in Nehemiah. And then the walls are completed, the people come together, they celebrate the completion of the walls. We have an outline of several different worship services that they have. One in particular happens where they read the Torah from morning, from daybreak till noon. And as the Torah is read by Ezra, who we studied about last week, as the Torah is read by Ezra, the people, the Torah being the first five books of Moses, the people are moved in response. And they start weeping. And Nehemiah says, time out, everybody. This is a day of celebration. Don't cry. We can give God, when you come before God, it doesn't have to be a time of crying. Ultimately, God's a party God as well. So this is a day where you need to go out and find all the really good things to eat and all the really good things to drink and have fun before the Lord and celebrate what He has done. And oh, by the way, those of you who have a lot, Look to those who don't and make sure you give them something good to eat and something good to drink. And let's all celebrate together as a people. And so the people have that. The people celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, which we had talked about in the Old Testament uh, uh, study we had back in uh, uh, the Torah times. The people have a National Day of Confession. This is another celebration they have where the Torah is read out loud for three hours. And, and during this time, the people just all start confessing the sinfulness that they and their forefathers have had. In the process of the confession, the people have drawn up a commitment to the Lord in writing. You know, we have commitments to God. Our commitments to God are evidenced uh, uh, sometimes verbally as we confess our faith. Uh, uh, our commitments to God are expressed uh, physically in baptism and, and, and uh, other things that we do. Our commitments to God we still make in prayer. I don't know if you've ever made a written commitment to God, um, but that's what Nehemiah has the people do. And the people write out and say, God, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're signing our names and we're having it sealed and here is our commitment to following your will as the people are moved having heard the word of the Lord. So that's, uh, Nehemiah closes with the chapter of him having to remind the people that they're still not doing some things right later on in his career. But Nehemiah spends about 12 years probably as governor of this region. He makes trips back to the king. But God grants him success. What can one person do? All of Jerusalem is rebuilt. Uh, not all. The walls are rebuilt to Jerusalem. The people are protected. Jerusalem is repopulated. The enemies uh, do not have their way with God's people. The poor people are, are, are blessed. The rich people are redirected successfully. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful story of what one man did because his brother came and sat down with him and answered the question honestly of, hey, how's it going back home? Oh, not good. Um, I tell you that to say one person with God 
makes a world of difference. One person, and, and we started this out by me asking, who out there is one person? And everybody raised their hand. So I direct this to you and to me. One person with God makes a world of difference. Whatever God has set before you, get in prayer over it. Read His Word. His Word powerfully moves people and events. Be in prayer. Be bold. If you're walking out for God, be bold. If God is behind it, you will be successful. If God's not behind it, then He'll redirect you. But you be bold in your faith and in your prayer life, seek the Lord. And the, 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 the obstacles on you, the, the problems on your road that you confront are ones where you, with God, make the difference. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is our prayer that you will take us and use us. That you will not only be God of the universe, but that you will be Lord of our lives. That we will find from you the direction we go. Give us wisdom, Father, to see how you want us to handle problems that come before us. And then inspire us and strengthen us and give us the means to do your works on, on this planet. To do your works in our lives, in, the, in our families, in our work, in our community. Uh, wherever, Lord, you plant us, may we thrive and grow and, and, and give the fruit that you want for that uh, uh, time and place. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.